Welcome back to Cinema Snorkel, everybody. Top of the morning to you, Carlin. Happy autumn, Happy I was going to say, because it might not be morning, depending on who and when you're listening. Oh, how true that is. But this is our special fall episode because we're doing a fall movie. Ooh, autumnal. <laughs> I'm sipping apple cider while we record this. What are you I'm sipping? I'm sipping two PSLs through a beer hat, through two straws straight into my <laughs> you mouth. You got your camel back <laughs> filled up. <laughs> yeah, cleaning it out is going to be hard, but uh, but, with, but <laughs> there's no it. better way to drink PSLs. Keeps your back all warm. Mmm, mm, PSL, the fruit of life. It's like, it's just the full, it's full nourishment. You're nourishing your soul and your body can't help but be nourished as well. <laughs> that's the, that's the best description of a pumpkin spice latte I've <laughs> ever heard. This is an older-ish movie and, but it's famous and everybody knows it. And so why are, why do we pick it, Case? Carlin, you, I don't know. You said the word <laughs> dead poet society in a big list of things. That we were thinking about. But you selected it out of that list. There was a lot of other interesting movies on that list, and you selected this one. This is going to be a fun one. <laughs> Without further ado, here's Dead Poet Society. Words and language. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Now, see that look in Mr. Pitt's eye? Like 19th century literature has nothing to do with going to business school or medical school, right? Maybe. Mr. Hopkins, you may agree with them, thinking, yes, we should simply study our Mr. Pritchard and learn our rhyme and meter and go quietly about the business of achieving other ambitions. A little secret for you. Huddle up. Huddle up! We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. Medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. To quote from Whitman, oh me. O oh, life of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, O oh, me, O oh, life? Answer, that you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? Um, I gotta be honest, I was really, I was really angry Carlin, about how, at the three quarter mark of this movie. You're just right off the bat launching in with anger? Yes. Let's just start off your criticism by saying this is one of the most beloved movies of all time. Generations of English teachers have seen this movie and then decided on their career. So, sorry, what what is it you were about to say? That's really true. No, and I <laughs> felt it too. Like when I was in an actor in college, I would think about this movie and be like, oh, I want to go to the cave and read poetry. And let it drip off your mouth like honey. Yes. So what made you angry this time? Well, I, this is, we got to just talk about the themes to find out whether or not it's valid feelings. But maybe, it, I mean, say it. Neil just kills say himself. It. Yeah, that's tough, isn't it? 
I think it made me angry. Well, for one, there's the theme of suicide, which we'll talk about. But then for two, I didn't believe it. Like, it felt like, let me just stab a knife in your heart and twist it to get the tears flowing. And I felt a little manipulated by it. Like, I didn't believe that he would have killed himself. The dad wasn't mean enough for me to believe that that was. Yeah. How about show us a really mean dad? Then I'll believe it. <laughs> this dad wasn't even that so, okay, mean. So, so maybe maybe I need to take it just on its own merit and say, okay, Neil felt bad enough that this is what he would do. But I just, it felt just like, I don't know. I don't want to use suicide as a way to r- rouse up some feelings because it's yeah. real. You know what I'm saying? Well, it's definitely more real now than it was then. And I wonder, Carla, because I thought about this, absolutely. Mm. My wife, Hannah, and I had a whole convo afterwards. Um, Yeah, yeah. I wonder if what we're hitting up against is that this movie was made in a completely different context than we're used to. Mm. And I think on Mm -hmm. two levels, first of all, suicide, exactly like you're saying, the rates have skyrocketed. We, uh, most people know someone who has given into that kind of warped self-harm logic and, and some of us are struggling with it. I, I don't want to make light of it. I think I'm with you that I feel anger because I'm angry at where our epidemic of self-harm has led us. And I'm, I want to do mm-hmm. everything in my power to combat it. I'm not okay with it anymore. It's not like a novelty. Like I feel like in 89, you didn't have mm-hmm. droves of kids killing themselves. And so they felt artistic yeah. freedom to swing that punch as hard as they could almost as a novelty. Like this was so bad. He killed himself. Well, what do we do now in a world where the context is so different now that, yeah, it was hard to watch that. Like, and just, yeah, just take it in stride. But you're right. Like it, it came in an era where it felt more like, um, like a benign violation. Do you remember we talked about that on some episode? Benign violation is a theory of comedy where if you, you make a joke about, you know, a dog dying of cancer is funny unless your dog is actually dying of cancer, in which case you can't go there right. and there's a boundary, but you ride the boundary and it's like as close as you can get to the boundary is as funny as your joke will be, but you can't cross that line. Um, otherwise, it becomes a trespass. Do you think there's a corollary rule for drama? Like it can be close, but it has to be sensitive to what's going on like you could release war of the worlds mm. uh right after 9-11 <laughs> happened i don't know that was maybe in poor taste too. yeah no i i think it's a sensitivity to what's happening in in real life and it matters what um I, i'm gonna sound like uh w pritchard in the <laughs> beginning of the textbook but it matters what is the message you're trying to say like if your poem is about how beautiful a sunrise is but you're invoking like flaming buildings um then right after 9-11 is not the right time. But if your poem is about like the love that we have for our fellow man and it's, it's taking, it's serious enough to handle um, invoking burning buildings. It matters how serious your subject matter Okay. Is. We're getting way ahead of ourselves. I think we're going to get there, but yeah, suffice it to say suicide part rubbed me the wrong yeah. way too, because I think dead poet society has a bad take on suicide and in a previous era, maybe that goes unnoticed. But now, when it's so prevalent, we're picking. We it's just we, I see the lie really clearly that yep. they they glamorize Neil's suicide like full a on a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. The other thing I felt cognitive dissonance about was 
sort of the um, just like the novelty of being yourself and marching to your the beat of your own drum. Yeah, that uh-huh. felt like well, like we all already basically do that in whatever way you want to. It's like right. against the backdrop of a really strict boys boarding school, the plot still pops a little bit. But when I look at society right now, I see a society of people who consider themselves free thinkers and are not inhibited by any kind of tradition, like tradition, excellence, discipline. Those are the farthest things from our minds yeah. <laughs> as a society. And so rebelling against them and just swinging your fist as hard as you can, like screw tradition. You know, It's like, well, yeah. everyone already is basically like the, the one teacher says, okay, at the beginning, they're sitting at the mess hall eating. And he yeah. goes, the, someday when they realize they don't have any artistic excellence in them, they'll hate you for it. What did you make of that, Carlin? We're just, yeah, what did you make of that? I was thinking, um, yeah, like probably a lot of people are like tooting their own individualistic horn without the groundwork of excellence are we on the side of the ebenezer scrooge teachers is that what i'm hearing like yes we're coming in full on cinema snorkel is on the team (laughs) on the side of the draconian new england private school teachers yes uh, uh, we helton (laughs) as they call it affectionately okay okay but okay 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 okay. think about this though okay this movie is uh, falls into this genre of like boarding school stories okay okay yeah. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. There's a lot of them. Oh, and more than Harry whole, Potter, that's for sure. There's a whole... No, no, no. Listen to me. <laughs> listen, Linda, listen. There's a whole genre of literature about like, oh, the boys at boarding school and their adventures. But this genre only works... And a couple other um, movies that, you know, like tap into them, like Annie at the orphanage or whatever. Right, right. But it only works if the school is dogmatic, rigid... And like squelches the children's like natural personality. Squelch them. Squelch the children. Squelch their unwritenality. Yeah, like Matilda. Because imagine, okay, imagine a, uh, it's like the reverse of this trope. Yeah. A bunch of like really passionate boys that care about doing like rigorous mathematics or something and they want to unlock the secrets of the universe and they go to a school that like doesn't take learning seriously and the teachers are just like la, 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 la. we don't care just do whatever you want let's go like, march around outside and they're like no <laughs> that's not fun to watch yeah i know that's that makes me mad but but when the setting is oppressive then the students get to live their adventure. Yeah, that's you know so what true. I'm saying? It's like it's like why you can't have an intact family for a good uh, yeah. adolescent hero or heroine because mom and dad are going to say, "Heck no, you're not going to Mordor." <laughs> you know, <laughs> get 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 off of that broom. You you can't you can't do that. That's no. That's your that's way unsafe. As they should. As they in should real life, in real life. Now, but, as they should. But it doesn't make for a good adventure. It's so funny coming into this because we didn't talk ahead of time. We never do. I had no idea how sour you were going to be on <laughs> Dead Poet Society versus how it – because I felt a lot of the same things. Here's what I say, Carlin. Let's go back to the cinema snorkel formula and talk about what did we – now, yeah, we've gotten yes. that out of the way. Yes, the now. elephant in the room. What did we like about this story and its very best moments – What is Dead Poet Society trying to say? What are the filmmakers trying to say? Ah, yes. Um, One moment that I loved was when Todd, who from the get-go you think, oh, Todd's the troubled one. He's the one that doesn't feel loved by his family. 
and Neil's the charismatic one. And you see, like, he has no problem rallying friends around mm-hmm. him. Or if he wants to start the Dead Poets Society, like, they're all going to jump on, jump on his bandwagon. Totally. He's the one, like, voted most likely to succeed. Um, and then it's like a switchy switch when Neil is the one that doesn't make it. But the moment when Pod gets a desk set for his birthday, the same desk set that he got last year, and then Neil comes in and like cheers him up and makes him laugh. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really sweet and pure moment. Mm. Well, if you do what we didn't do, which is ignore society and culture and just enter the world of the film as they're presenting mm. it, it just it is a compelling story. And I felt like there are uh, like three major themes that I noticed. And the first and most obvious one is carpe diem, right? Seize the day. And in my opinion, Carlin, this is the heart of the movie. And it's actually where the movie makes the most sense and where I think the messages still stand. And to me, it's a message of rejecting passivity and choosing action, Mm. right? Mm. And the whole – Mr. Keating's whole thing is just rattling these boys' cages – Getting them to take life seriously. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I, okay, in terms of what I liked about this movie, I think that message is pure, it holds, and it carries really well through the mm. dynamic performances of all the actors. No one can deny that this movie is incredibly well acted. Oh, And yeah. I think that lands because um, you see these private school boys, they really are kind of beaten down. Their personalities are made into these cookie-cutter molds. Mm-hmm. Right. And like all boys, they have a really heavy layer of cynicism around hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. If you tried to just like <laughs> I live uh, on a college campus. If I tried to go read poetry, like let's just say I grabbed a random group of college age guys and was like, guys, listen to this poetry I wrote that it would be ridiculous. Like they might uh, I would be ridiculed. I'd be mocked and ridiculed. Guys have a hard time getting to the real uh, the real emotion, right? I heard someone say the default for most men in our society is that all emotion is bad except for rage and lust. Ooh, wow. Those are the, t- those are the two acceptable emotions for a man. Yeah. Uh, anything else like just exuberance, uh, sensitivity. Yeah. And again, this is, this is changing sometimes, but, but I still think it holds true. I think young men have a hard time being genuine with their emotions because the world is very hard on them and their peers are very hard on them. You could get mocked and ridiculed. So what Mm -hmm. Keating is doing with Carpe Diem is like punching through that like kind of sardonic layer Mm -hmm. of cynicism and getting to like, this is your life, your worm food tomorrow. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. Carpe Diem. Yeah. I think that carries. And why do you think they listen to him? Because they jump on his bandwagon really quick. It takes no. Nah, it takes them a little bit. It takes them a little bit, maybe, to like get up on the desk. Yeah. But what is it about him that makes them listen? That's a great question. I want to hear your answer. I guess for me, it's just that Mr. Keating is a full-grown man, and he's comfortable with his emotions, and that's attractive. Mm-hmm. I think that's what most boys want to have. They want to be, you know, like when Aragorn cries, no one's like. That's embarrassing, you know. Real men are uh, in control of their emotions, and they they just are more at home in who they are. And I think Mr. Keating, he's so comfortable being passionate about life that that's infectious. Yeah, absolutely. There, you know the the scene where they're all supposed to read their poems. 
And the guy gets up and goes, the cat sat on the Classic. mat. Like, that's his big joke. I'm not doing going to do right. the assignment. I'm just going to make a mockery of this. And his re- Keating's response, I think, is brilliant. He doesn't go, ha ha, okay, well, try again next week and this time take it seriously. He's like, simple can be good, but don't be ordinary. That's right. It's not that he misses the point. He knows what this boy is doing, but he's treating him as an adult. He's treating him as if he's like taking him more seriously than he's taking himself. It it, it shames him a little bit. And the boy is all, he feels embarrassed and maybe, but it also gives him permission to like, maybe shoot higher. Maybe you didn't try because you're embarrassed that you'll fail. I think that is the heartbeat of it. Keating takes the boys seriously. No one else in their life takes them seriously. Their parents want a cookie cutter, a doctor or a lawyer. The school has promised to deliver. The headmasters are universally grumpy and or the whatever, the teachers, they're like (laughs) miserable grumps. Keating's the only one who actually knows these guys, cares about them, and dignifies what they're feeling. Mm. And listen, that's Mm. good. I mean, if that resonates with you, I mean, it should, right? Like we've, hopefully, I would, I would pray that all of us have had at least one teacher who did exactly that. Maybe not in as out of the box kind of a way, but like, you know when adults are taking you seriously as a kid, right? Yeah, totally. You probably feel it more than you could even say. There's a lot to unpack right there. Like our feelings matter. Our inner lives matter. Living for something matters. It's it's worth it to Mm. have passion and not hide behind this layer of cynicism or stay in this cookie cutter mold, right? Mm -hmm. and I, yeah, so the heartbeat of the movie is Carpe Diem, Seize the Day. It's not subtle about that theme. <laughs> I would say, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. So Carpe Diem, but there's there's kind of another flavor in there. There's, there, there's action versus conformity and just doing the written path. Like when they're marching and they all start marching to the same beat. Yeah. And he's like, why don't you find your own silly walk? And all I could see was Monty Python and <laughs> <laughs> the Ministry of Silly Tough. Walks. Um, but there's another kind of flavor, which is like, why, what is the purpose of life? Why are, why do we have words? And he says to communicate. And he says, no, to woo women. It's like the point of life, the point to be lawyers and doctors and whatever is for poetry, is for art, is like the point of life is about yeah. those things, not just mere survival. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race and the human race is filled with passion, poetry, beauty, romance, love. These are what we stay alive for. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a direct reflection on the meaning of life at the heart of that carpe diem. Yeah. And so I was doing some background reading. By no means do I understand the full picture, but that's a, an idea that's central to romanticism within literature. And in fact, mm-hmm. all of the poets he's mm-hmm. quoting, uh, is like Walt Whitman would be on the tail end of that romanticism. Uh, in the U.S., mm-hmm. they called it transcendentalism for some reason. I don't know why. Mm. Uh, but th- you had all these Brit- like English romantic poets, right? You had Samuel Taylor, Coleridge, John Keats, who uh, obviously Keating is a name based off of John Keats. It's meant to evoke, oh, this is oh, kind of a literary sure. guy. Uh, William Wordsworth, William Blake, uh, Lord Byron, like... There was this huge wave of romantic poetry, and what that wave did was reject the mind uh, in favor of the heart and, like, creativity, Mm -hmm. right? So that, like, juxtaposing, like, he's putting engineering on one side and poetry on the other side, and he's like, engineering makes life possible. Poetry is what life is for. 
you know, that's a very like that's a very romantic, the literary sure. movement. Which I feel like okay, this movie came out when our parents were our age, right? We just hit different. Like it, I think it really resonated with them. Yeah. I mean, I don't know specifically our parents. Um, you know, our grandparents were raised in like Prussian era. They were survivors and worked really hard. And then there, there was kind of this throwing off of the authority and like, how do you feel like it it hit our parents' generation at the time that they were alive in the 80s? I mean, this just, yeah, there's all these waves of culture. Like, I, I hear what you're saying. Like, like we're on this, uh, there's a philosopher named Charles Taylor. He coined the phrase expressive individualism. That's the dominant philosophy of our day. What does it mean to be human? Mm-hmm. It's to express yourself. Uh, yeah. In 2023, year of our Lord, there is no denying that that is the dominant ethos of everything. Everything. Churches, yeah. uh, po- both political parties, uh, like all our stars, like every TV show, every Disney movie, every everything. Like it's the dominant. There was, a, there was a Razor commercial a couple years ago and the... the literal campaign slogan was worship yourself oh my gosh that's like so over the top right no irony worship yourself. just worship yourself for a razor i know crazy well i guess i should buy that razor it's pretty convincing um listen it's like in 2023 that ethic has completely won the day there's nothing really standing I mean, there are some yeah. things, right? But, but maybe in '89 when this movie came out, it wasn't that way yet. There was still a lot of uh, stuffiness to be cleared out. Yeah. Of so yeah, I think I think that's what you're hitting on. Even though our parents, by the standards of their parents, were way more like liberated, like they were the footloose Kevin Bacon generation, like work hard, <laughs> party hard. Like that's the '80s, right? And we now like glamorize the '80s because it was so much fun, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Um, and before that, you had the 60s, the free love, the hippies. Like, So there are a lot of waves of this sort of uh, philosophy washing over culture. I just think the difference is we're so far, so much farther down that road now, right? Then again, Carlin, yeah. I'm, I'm well aware that there are people listening to this whose lived experience will feel way different. You know, maybe they had a strict upbringing or something, mm. or they don't feel like it's completely won the day. If that's you, I'm actually super curious. Instagram us. I want to hear your your perspective because from where i'm sitting and where you're sitting carlin it does seem like expressive individualism has won so and that's why i want to defend a little bit sometimes the stuffy professors because (laughs) freedom of of liberated self-expression only rings if you have this foundation of structure and tradition and there's a sense in which it actually it's benefiting from those things without realizing it yeah like you can only do poetry if you've studied literature and you've studied poetry and and there's a level of excellence that can't be achieved without the structure. Yeah. That's right. And if you if you hit it so hard like you you swing that punch as hard as you can and and swing away from the structure, then you fall into this kind Goopy, of like formless. <laughs> yeah. You lose yeah. the excellence, and then it, and then it's not fun anymore. It's just like, oh, what are we doing? Like, it's like eating ice cream for three meals totally. straight. Or you know? literally, as a kid in fourth grade, I just got bit by the poetry bug. I had, we had a poetry class. We had to learn all this stuff, and I wrote uh, uh-huh. all kinds of poetry in fourth grade. And I don't know, 
Yeah, I did. <laughs> it's, it, did you bring some I to did read today? For the whole class. No, I didn't. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> like when you're just, uh, I don't know, when you're like really bored as a kid and you get all slap happy and just silly, and then you yes. try writing yeah. poetry or whatever, it just is, or writing anything or doing anything, it's just terrible. That's a terrible feeling. But like when my teacher, Mrs. Ross, shout out to you, Mrs. Ross, forced us to stay with the rhyme and the meter and like it's got to be this many syllables. If it's not, you, you got to do it again until it's that many syllables in this line. And, and A, B yeah. has to, it has to go A, B, A, B, A, B, or you have to redo it, right? It's like when she made us do that, the poems yeah. turned out, I mean, I was in fourth grade, so I'm not going to say amazing, but, but, but <laughs> pretty good. Pretty dang good, yeah. Look out for my anthology hitting Amazon Kindle. But it turned out is the point. And when it's just Casey, like in my sweatpants, laying on the ground, just like, eh, I'm bored. Like, I just, I never did anything. You know, I doodle a little bit and then get bored yeah. and do other things and get bored. It's the discipline that makes it. We have a teacher. You have a teacher that's willing to impose some rules on you. And then one day you realize, like, I actually kind of like playing yes. piano. That gets into, like, a, a sub-theme of, like, yeah. The, I want to put it under individualism versus conformity, but it's almost like a free thinkers versus the rules. Maybe that's a, yeah. a way better uh, heading. Free thinking versus the rules, right? Um, hmm. The movie wants you to land so hard on the side of free thinking but the one scene I'm thinking of is when he makes Todd get up in front of the class and just look at a picture of yeah. Walt Whitman. And then you're just like, close your eyes. I'm covering your eyes. Like, just see the first thing that comes to your head. You know, and he's like, yeah. and he comes yeah. out with this like shockingly good poetry. <laughs> it's like, oh, that just didn't feel. Ooh, there's a poet in you <laughs> after all. It didn't feel believable. Now, listen, I don't know. Like, you're, you are a theater major. So there is actually, yeah. sometimes you need to get past your feeling of self-consciousness. Yes. Right? And that scene captures it. Remember when he's like, um, yop. It's the yop scene. He's like, you need to be, you know, a barbaric yop. And he's like, yes. yop, eh, yop. And then he yop. there's a moment where he comes unglued and he goes, like he's angry yeah. at heating. Yeah. Okay, I've lived this teaching moment Many times in in my acting classes. Yeah, tell us about it. Tell us about it, because maybe there's something good okay. there that we need to uh, like take into consideration. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating because you kind of have to get out of your own way, and if you have a good teacher like I did, they're able to haul out to your kind of more uh, primal self mm -hmm. and get past. I mean, the the we would learn about it in Freudian terms, like you have your ego and your super ego and then inside you have your id or whatever i'm getting probably getting this wrong but um your the the you that you present to the world is based on manners and politeness and um fitting into society and that's necessary because otherwise you wouldn't have any friends but <laughs> right. there's there's the real you which is whatever you're truly thinking in your deep heart um and and if you're ever going to act or really connect to art in general you have to find a way to access those feelings. Right. Um, and so a good teacher can kind of provoke you into dropping the facade and letting out your true feelings. And and sometimes they do that by making you just actually angry at them. That's like an yeah, easy, I mean, yeah. it's like a little hack to get you off balance. And when you're off balance, then then the truth comes out. 
But what you're after is not just like, oh, my inner feelings. You're after what's real. You're like, stop pretending to be polite. Stop. Like, what's real? What's actually happening here? Like, Todd is afraid, desperately afraid, but it's paralyzing him from doing anything great. Yeah. And the truth is he could be great. Yes. But he has to get out of his own way. Yeah. And Keating sees that. Yeah. And he's a good teacher in that moment, actually. The part that's unbelievable is that maybe by rejecting all the rules, you can still create insanely good poetry just from your heart. The part that yeah. is believable and good is that we do need to push past superficiality and dare to be courageous enough to take a risk or no art ever will, will get created, right? Yeah. You have to try and fail before you can try and succeed. Do you think Keating wants to throw out all the rules of poetry? According to the filmmakers? No. Okay, here's what I think the movie is really about. Keating, he's on this campaign to, like, help these boys and love on them. You know, he's giving them what he received in his life, which is this love of, of art and poetry and life. And he, you know, he has his girl back in London, whatever. You don't really know a lot about him, but, you know, he used to be a, a Hilton boy. And you know that he sucks the marrow out of life. But then something terrible happens. And everyone... The school thinks Keating's responsible, but I think Keating thinks he's responsible wow. too, because he maybe I, I gotta I kind of gotta mm, puzzle this mm. one out a little bit, but he has that conversation with Neil in his office where Neil comes to him with fighting back tears and is like trying to he's like I feel stuck, and Keating says you need to tell your father how you feel, um, which is a good. It sounds like he's, one, taking Neil seriously, but also he's not disrespecting the authority of his father. He's not saying, do the play anyways. He's saying, you, son, you need to have the courage to fight for yourself. And there's a moment, I think he lies. I, I, I don't remember if this is clear. Is it clear that he didn't actually tell his dad <laughs> that he was going to do the play? He tells Keating, oh, my dad's out of town, and he said I can do the play. Oh, so... I think he lied to Keating. Oh, man. I, I, that, I miss that. Because his dad's not out of town. His dad walks into the, into the playhouse. And I think Neil lies to Mr. Keating. And, and he knows it. You can see the look on his face. He's like, Some, this is, he feels bad for Neil. But he's like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't think he thinks Neil is as desperate as he turns out to be. And, and it's a tragedy. And I think Mr. Keating, he can't help but feel these feelings of responsibility. Yeah. His mistake is that he underestimates how desperate Neil yeah. feels. This isn't business as usual for Neil. Things at home are really bad. And Keating kind of really pushes bad. him towards a breaking point, unwitting. Here's the tragedy. Tell me what you think about this moment. They come home after the play. The mom's sitting there all worried. And the dad, he's got the quiet, seething anger that's terrifying. And he says, what do you have to say for yourself? And Neil is about to tell him. No, and he says, yeah, you never care about what I feel. And the dad's like, okay, what do you feel? Tell me. Nothing. Nothing. And he closes up. You see Neil close up and just resign himself to like, nope, my dad will never listen to me. And that's how it is. I think Neil's dad wants to see him defend himself. Do you agree? Man, I got to be honest, I didn't catch the idea that Neil maybe didn't tell his dad uh, that he was in the play. So he mm -hmm. didn't follow Keating's advice. He didn't carpe diem. He didn't stand up for himself and, and try to live. He tried to maybe do it both ways. And that was his moment. And so if that's true, 
the logic of the film would suggest that Neil didn't actually carpe diem. He didn't have the courage to maybe, when the chips were down, go through with it and just tell his dad how he feels. So I think that's plausible. I don't know. I don't know, though. I think the movie is actually quite subtle in this theme. Um, But I do think that's the intention. And then there's more movie after that. It ends with that scene where the boys all stand on the table. And I think what that's trying to say is, like, Neil is a tragedy. And yeah, he he didn't listen to the, he didn't actually seize the day. He thought he did, but he was just a boy. Like, he acted in one play, and he didn't even live his life. And Keating reads at the very end, let's pull this up, the opening words to the Dead Poets Society meeting that they read every time. I went to the woods by Henry David Thoreau. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not when I came to die to discover that I had not lived. That line takes on a whole different meaning when a 17-year-old boy kills Hmm. himself. Neil has not lived. Hmm. He thought he had. I think in Neil's mind, he's the puck and he's in this play and he went to the woods literally that's his moment (laughs) and they go to the woods again and again because the woods kind of represent everything that's wild and adventurous so who does the movie think is responsible for neil's death my first thought is to say his dad right indirectly obviously but his dad pushed him so hard and never listened but after thinking about this element it makes me think it's neil not mr keating not Mr. Keating, because... Because he feels the remorse. But his advice was, stand up to your dad, tell him how you feel, and Neil never does that. Right. And there's a moment when you think, maybe if he did, things could be different. He's he's almost a man, and if his dad could see him stand up for what he wants, maybe he could earn a little bit of respect. Or at least still live his life, you know? He could run away, he could do a lot of... I mean, living is preferable to not living, Right? Carpet, like seizing your life is different than ending it. So something yeah. something went clearly awry. But see, that's where the movie's confusing. Because on just a cursory watching of this, you're like, oh, yeah, see? Like the meanies prevented Neil from carpe ading enough. And so he ended his life because he didn't have the chance to carpe diem. Right. He's a victim. And to me, that makes me go, well, carpe diem's a sucky philosophy of life then. Like if it doesn't give you the fortitude... Yeah. Right. If it's not anchored in timeless truths that that reflect you back towards what's true, that actually life is bigger than you and uh, it's worth living, even if not all your dreams come true, even if you don't get to be an actor. Right. Yeah. yeah. And the, the tragedy of today's kids and I, our generations in this, our, our friends are dealing with this, is that life has told us the point of life is to live your dreams. And mm-hmm. so when we feel a slight holdup, on one hand, I don't want to say it's only slight holdups. On the other hand, I do want to say it's like even the slight holdups are causing us to spiral into meaninglessness. Mm. That's the tragedy of the suicide epidemic. We're not in Auschwitz. We're not living hand to mouth in the Great Depression. We're in the most opulent, prosperous society ever on the face of the earth. And so- yeah. Our, our emotional inner lives are so derailed from that, from thinking that our dreams are all going to happen. And so when they don't, we spiral into depression and then from there into self-harm. Mm. To me, I go, that's where carpe diem leads you if it's not anchored in a better version of reality. But I don't know what the movie thinks because, Carlin, on one hand, you're saying that then Mr. Keating has maybe some remorse and we're maybe meant to think that Neil just didn't carpe diem 
uh, in the right way. But then what the final desk scene when they stand on their desk and say, oh, captain, my captain, Mm -hmm. it's almost like saying, Mr. Keating, like you've made an impact here. We're activated. Like we're alive. Uh, And, you know, half of us in this class are willing to seize the day. It seems like what the movie's trying to say is we're saying this in vindication of Neil like Neil was one of us and we're never going to forget him. Like I know I'm, impl- I'm inferring yeah. a lot from all of this, but it, d- that, you know, standing on the desk is carrying a lot of narrative weight here, right? It's almost <laughs> like we still believe in everything you taught us. Neil dying doesn't dissuade us from wanting to live this way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I don't think the movie's actually condemning Neil. I think they are condemning his dad. Maybe there's a twist where he just mm. didn't have the gumption to do it, but I don't think the movie puts even one ounce of blame on Neil. I think they paint him as the tragic victim completely. Huh. And it's just tragedy, and that's just the poetry of life. Casualties are there, but it's like, but we're living, you know? Yeah. I, I honestly think that's where the movie wants you to feel like it lands. Do you think that's right? I disagree with you, actually. I mean, I want to hear it because I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know what's true, but here's how it hit me. Um, because Todd is the character that is the main character. He's the one that goes through the transformation, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And how Todd reacts to Neil's death, I think is meant to give us insight into this is a tragedy. Say more. We're not meant to be like, oh good, Neil finally, like he stuck it to the man. He made his dad feel terrible. And that's what we should be looking for. Tragedies happen and it's, and it's terrible and horrible, but Can the rules, are the rules and the structure, are they big enough to handle our feelings? No. You need poetry to handle the heaviest things in life. Todd is the lens by which we have to evaluate what happened to Neil. Yes. Neil has had the biggest impact on Todd. Let's just track Todd's journey because I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm figuring this out as I'm saying it. The beginning, Todd's just quiet and sheepish and um, doesn't know how to participate, doesn't want to read poetry out loud because he's embarrassed. Then he discovers, Doc, Mr. Keating pulls something out of him that turns out like, okay. And, and, but there's a moment right. when Neil gets angry at Todd and he's like, how come you don't care? Like, I'm bursting with this stuff. I have to be, I have to act in plays and I have to do the Dead Poets Society and you're sitting there like you don't yeah, care. Right. What you don't see is that Todd feels all the same feelings. He just doesn't have the charisma or the gumption to put it out there into the world. And Neil can't. They, they're foils of each other in this way. Hmm. So when Neil turns out to be the one that dies, he turns out to have the more troubled home life and the more troubled mind. I think we're meant to think that Todd will grow up to be... The new Mr. Keating, because remember Mr. Keating says, when I, I was a 98-pound weakling. Yeah. I didn't know anything. I was a the, an intellectual 98-pound weakling, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So we, yeah, I mean, I wonder if there's some poetic, see what I did there? <laughs> Resonance there where Todd comes into his own because Todd's the first one to stand up and say something to yes. Mr. Keating as he's walking out the door. Yeah. Todd is the one who has enough courage to just do it, right? Yeah. I think you're right. I think that helps me, um, I think that helps me understand what the filmmakers make of Neil's death is that it has an impact on Todd to, and it gives Todd the courage to stand up. Yeah. Somehow. The question was, who does the movie say is at fault for Neil's suicide? And I think the movie says it's his dad's fault. Mm -hmm. I think you're right that Todd is the main character. What do you think Todd thinks about Neil's suicide with regards to Mr. Keating? The school wants to pin it on Mr. Keating because they need a scapegoat or whatever. 
and they right. they're too stuffy to see the beauty of what's yeah. been going on but some of the boys agree and some of the boys are like well maybe this is stupid and dangerous and like i don't know maybe poetry's dangerous because it can open up all these like it could lead you to do something stupid like kill yourself yeah yeah and maybe that wouldn't have happened if there was never a mr keating and and if neil never discovered he loves acting and he just obeyed his father. But I think what the movie's yes. trying to say is Mr. Keating was cultivating something that's already present. It hasn't been yeah. beaten out of the boys yet. All the grown-ups used to be boys too, but they've had the system beat it out of them. Right. And now they're just the drones that society produces. Yeah. And so either you can conform and, and do what your father wants and go be a doctor, or you could try to nourish that that poet's heart and some of the boys are like don't just graduate just graduate and go to college cod stands up on his desk and says no what we learned here is is worth knowing i think that's right where the movie lands and you know what it ties into carlin is that theme of who's taking these boys seriously yeah because if it's all a game like some of the boys oh i, w- I wanted to talk about this some of the boys treat it like a game throughout the whole thing like, they bring those girls uh-huh. to the cave in the most turbo cringe moment of any film I've seen uh-huh. recently. <laughs> it was only surpassed by uh, that one dude, Knox, reading the poem to the girl in the middle of the high school. That's turbo cringe. Ooh, that was painful. <laughs> I almost fell off the couch. I was like, no, no, it's too cringy. But on that theme of, like, taking life seriously, the uh, there's one character transformation. He's a secondary character, but it's the dude who brings the girls to the cave, right? Rwanda. <laughs> Rwanda or whatever. When I saw that scene, I was curious what you thought. I was like, man, he doesn't know what this is really about. He's using this to yeah. pick up chicks. Like, Yeah, right. Now, Keating said the point was to woo women, but not like that. Like, But we're meant to do it in like the Knox way where he's like, what? It, he, he's like, I read the poem. And they're like, what'd she say? And he said, nothing, but it doesn't matter. I read it. Yeah, I still said my feelings like he's more caught up in the romance of being in love that he's immune to the embarrassment of it. Yeah. And there's something about that that is meant to feel more noble than just picking up chicks. (laughs) Right. And like when he reads the poem, like she walks in beauty like the night, like he's reading that to this bimbo cheerleader, like girl, (laughs) you see how bad it fails because they devolve immediately to like, oh, me and my buddy are working on a hi-fi radio set. (laughs) silence and then the other guy said yeah i might be going to Yale, but i might not but the point being that guy goes on a character transformation rwanda because when he gets paddled he doesn't fess up at that point like because they're like what'd you tell him did you tell him and he gets it i didn't snitch on you like i'm taking it seriously and then that guy stands up on the desk at the end like he might have been using it for some laughs in the cave with the girls but he actually his heart was in it He's taking it mm-hmm. seriously, too. That's where the movie wants us to land. Yeah, I think so. Interesting. What do you think a Christian worldview has to say about Carpe Diem? You know, the the good parts of this movie, I think, are reflected throughout the Gospels. Um, Jesus has, like, an urgency to him when he comes to the earth, right? And... And if we're meant to look at Jesus as the visible image, the Bible says, of the invisible God, then Jesus is mm. everything humanity should be. 
Mm. And you can't look at Jesus without a certain element of like, there's some carpe diem happening here. Like, uh, he's like, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send Mm. more workers. And he says this elsewhere. He's like, because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Right? Uh. So Jesus is not afraid to live real life. He's sitting with real people. He's drawing their hearts out. He's a friend of tax yeah. collectors and sinners and prostitutes and thieves and beggars, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And even Pharisees on occasion. When Nicodemus comes to him in the middle of the night, they have this dramatic late night conversation. This is not yeah. a stuffy dude who's not interested in the real heart questions of life, right? Right, right. That's why people were so drawn to Jesus. And in fact, carpe diem is such a shallow silly life mantra compared to what Jesus gives you. It's the real stuff. Like it's the meat and potatoes Mm. to the sugar high that carpe diem sometimes devolves into. Right? Right. Because within Jesus, it's built on the the bedrock of reality. So whereas like romanticism, the literary tradition sort of needed to juxtapose the intellect uh, and the heart. And they're like, forget cold logic. We choose to live, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Christianity and the God of creation never does that to us. He never, ever makes us choose between the head and the heart. That's actually always a false dichotomy. Mm. Instead, our emotions are meant to wake us up to the truth and send us on a journey to find the truth. And the mind and the will are meant to then respond, the mind to find out what is true and the will to have the, the gumption to live according to it. Right? Hmm. Those three mm-hmm. faculties of, of human life, the intellect, the will, and the heart, are all, they're designed to go in harmony. Hmm. And so we sidestep a lot of the silliness that, like when we now look back at the romantics, there's like, I mean, there's genuine beauty. But there is something silly about how, like, melancholy they all were. Like, you look at the British romantics, and they were all known for being choleric and sickly. Like John Keats died at age 25 or something. He was like the melancholy Ooh. poet of the post-Enlightenment era. You know, like they have that, they have that uh, reputation because um, they were a little melodramatic. Right. It, sometimes you can, catch, you can catch the fever of what they're doing and it resonates. But at some point it kind of falls a little flat and you're like, okay, well, how far, how far can romanticism really take you? Right. It's just a vibe. If it's not built on truth, it's just a vibe. Yeah. But the poetry itself, the desire itself is calling out for something deeper. Right? Mm. So it's like a good, it's like a it's like pouring kerosene on the fire. It'll get a quick fire going fast. Yeah. You just need some like truth. You need some some bones underneath it. So you need some like real timber to actually sustain the fire. It reminds me so much of um This is a major theme in C.S. Lewis's writing. He talks about it like it's a little window. And if you read The Pilgrim's Regress, which is his like stylized telling of his testimony, essentially of his journey to faith. Wow. It starts out where the the pilgrim catches a view from a little window in his hedge. And it's a view of something beautiful. And he like he he calls it joy and beauty. And he like. So he sits by his window every day trying to catch that feeling again. But it's like, have you seen the meme where it's like Spotify gives you a new song and then you love the song so much and then he <laughs> comes back and he's like, I broke it. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, you yeah. get something, yeah. you get a new yeah. little something and you're like, this is the greatest song I've ever heard. Yes. And then 
if you listen to it too much, though, you'll eventually hate it. And then it's you're like, skip. Like, you hear the first nanosecond of song and you're like, skip it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we can we break the things that we worship when they're not big enough. And so that happens to C.S. Lewis's character where he, like, cherishes this view so much. But, like, the more he tries to, like, put it in a jar, it slips through his fingers. Yeah. And then he goes on this whole long journey where sometimes he catches the feeling and sometimes it's nowhere to be found. And what he eventually comes to is that that window into that beautiful view was a signpost. It wasn't even the real thing. It was just a, like it was like a literally a sign on a pole that says, you know, heaven is this way. And when you're on a long journey to heaven, you see that signpost and it feels like a piece of heaven. Yeah. Because it's coming and you're like, oh, it's this way. It's only, you know, 12 miles up the road. Like that's closer than it's ever been before. But if you confuse the signpost for the place, then it's like you can't love the signpost. The signpost isn't the place and it will fail you. It's only meant to push you in the direction towards heaven. Yeah, C.S. Lewis understood that so well. In fact, if if you love this kind of poetry, C.S. Lewis would be your best ally. No one defended the passion of being human against sort of the cold, dead, modernist impulse harder than C.S. Lewis. Yeah. If you read his space trilogy, it's literally about a bunch of dead-hearted academics who take over the world and create an Orwellian dystopian system, right? And the people resisting them are filled with life and heart, right? Yeah. Uh, but it's not, just, it's not just passions. It's not just the stomach, right, or the, de- or the desires. It's mm-hmm. the will. It's a redeemed sense of feelings combined mm. with the willpower to do the right thing at all costs, fighting against a cold, dead rationalism. That was like one of C.S. Lewis's major battles he fought. If you go to Narnia, well, you almost get the opposite because you're fighting, um, you're fighting like elemental sort of animism uh, of, of nature, like the, the white witch and her mm-hmm. army of like ghouls and minotaurs and like bad creatures that are just gut level instinctively bad, right? Uh, sort of animistic yeah, yeah. versus order, right? You have High King Peter and Lucy and Susan. There's like a hierarchy and a, a yeah. design to Narnia. It's supposed to go this way. So the first the first battle is against the elemental white witch, but the second battle is against Telmar, who are this institutionalized, rigid structure of men. <laughs> yeah. And then the, the old yeah. Narnians are like this old mythical, you know, like the kings of old have come back from the past. And then it's like the wild Narnian creatures that are supposed to be extinct, but now they're going to overthrow the cold steel of the, of the Telmarines. Listen, no one got it like C.S. Lewis. Like if, if he watched Deadpool, I don't, I think he'd be driven nuts by dead poet society personally, but I, but no one gets the instinct that that movie is trying to capture better than C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Well, and what he's doing is just reflecting exactly what we said. Christian theology is never, it's sometimes represented as head versus heart. It's never actually that. Hmm. It's about redeemed brains, redeemed wills, and redeemed hearts against corrupt, fallen minds, wills, and emotions. Yeah. Passions. Yeah. Like what this movie makes you want, I think, is found in Christianity. Like it's found in the truth of the universe. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Even even down to like that that desire for individualism versus conformity, which is another big theme. Yeah. Like Jesus is like narrow is the road that leads 
to salvation and few find it, right? Wide is the, is the road that leads to hell. Yeah. M- most people are just drones. It's true. Jesus called uh, the select few who listened to what he had to say to follow him, even if it cost them everything. If that, I mean, that should ring a bell if you've just watched Dead Poet Society a little bit, right? Right. Because what strikes me about Dead Poet Society is what Neil dies for is not worth his death. But what Jesus calls us for is worth dying. How, how can you say that? Like, where, wh- why do you say that? Well, because you're on the side of the one who made everything against an army of lies and fallenness. Mm. You're actually on the side of, when you're on the side of Jesus, you're on the side of everything good about creation itself. The irony is, and this is so present in uh, Dead Poet Society, religion as such often finds itself on the side of deadness, Mm. like all intellect, Mm -hmm. no heart. Jesus would have been the first one to reject that. You know what I mean? Like that was actually a big part of what he came to do. The irony is in the human heart is this bent towards authoritarianism and legalism, which is different than being there being rules and order to life. But we want to take religion and make it this dead carapace that we impose on people. And every time they do anything religious in Dead Poet Society, it's like, ugh. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They present it so bad. Um, and there's more than a nugget of truth in that. Sometimes churches feel dead. Sometimes religion loses the spark, right? But Jesus never does. And that's why we got to mm. be reading his words. We got to go to the source. We got to rip out the introduction and go straight to the actual the the poetry, the anthology, the gospels themselves, right? Yeah. If you listen to this podcast enough, our cards are always on the table. We just think God is real. We just think Christianity is true. And so everything's going to remind us of that. But but it's only because it actually is that way. You know what I mean? Like, so, and anything else feels silly. Like yeah. uh, one commentator pointed this out, like when Keating has them like stand on the desk, like, like, everyone, stand on a desk. Dare to be different. Okay, one at a time. Everyone get up here. All of us are going to do this. Okay, don't just, nope, don't just do it lame. Everyone has to mean it. You know, it's right. like making them walk off a desk. It's like, okay, well, now we're all walking up and down desks. Like, even that empty struggle for individualism versus conformity devolves into just pure silliness yeah. if it's not for a bigger purpose. Like, yeah. even them marching around the courtyard, like, oh, you're marching in unison. That's, see, oh, just goes to show. We all want to be conformists, you right. know. He's like, no, everyone, I want everyone to now walk silly. Like, <laughs> everyone be silly. Go. It's like, okay, this is like mandatory fun. He's making them conform. It's a teaching tool. Yes. And if you ever confuse the tool for <laughs> the lesson... Yeah. then it's it'll break. Why should we strive to be individuals, Carlin, I think is the big question that we would want to answer. First, yeah. how does Dead Poet Society answer it? Why should we strive to be individuals? Then how does scripture answer oh, it? Oh, yeah, just quick answer both of those questions. Christianity uniquely dignifies the individual. Um, and what we've already said is that we kind of already live in a culture that we like took the lesson, but then we took it too far. Like everybody's now standing on a desk. So we did it. Now we really understand what it means to be an individual. But what Christianity does is it, it holds the tension of all of it so well, because on one hand it validates your feelings and it calls out to those, to to your, the artist inside you or the poet inside you or whatever. And it gives you something to sing about. And it gives you a reason to be excellent. 
but it also is the perfected version of rules and order. And, and it, and it fully understands that you can't really enjoy the things of life unless you take them in the order that they're designed to be taken in. There's nothing more pathetic, honestly, than when you're trying so hard to be an individual. It gets so petty. Like, I'm just remembering, like, when we would get McDonald's Happy Meal toys. It's like, if yours was the same as your friend's, it was like, no! <laughs> you have to take it back! <laughs> you know, like, you get in these, like, blow out, knock them down, drag them out fights over, like, because, like, that toy represents you being an individual. It's your personality. Your whole personality is that McDonald's Happy Meal toy. There's something developmentally appropriate there. But if that becomes your whole shtick, it's like, dude, just feels immature. Like if you meet adults who are like, well, I do this differently. Like, in, like when someone comes along that offers something new, everyone clamors to it and then sucks the marrow out of life. And then you're like, okay, well, we've done that one. Like what's next? Who else but C.S. Lewis put it perfectly. Even in literature and art, no man who bothers about originality will ever be original. Mm. Whereas if you simply try to tell the truth without caring two pence how often it has been told before, you will, nine times out of ten, become original without ever having noticed it. The principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Mm. Lose yourself and you'll save it. Look for Christ and you'll find him and with him everything else thrown in. Yeah. It's about the truth. Got to be about the truth. If it's not about the truth, if it's about the feelings that the truth gives you, then it's water in your hands. You can't hold it. But if you're right. seeking the truth, then the, your feelings will like respond to it in a glorious symphony. Beauty is always about something. Yes. And I, I don't think Dead Poet Society <laughs> fully grasps that. Although, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I should have said this earlier because I thought it was so funny. I was reading a review of it by uh, someone with a PhD in English literature. Uh-huh. And they were like, I despise Dead Poet Society just like a trained surgeon despises house. Yeah, or Grey's Anatomy. Right, right, right. It's like, it's play acting at the real thing. He's actually teaching them terrible methods of <laughs> of understanding and analyzing poetry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it kind of gives the vibes, and it and it's it's gotten a lot of people into poetry. So it's like, there's something good. Yeah, but... and if you know nothing about it at all, then then it might be, it might do exactly what it's meant to do. I remember in the first art class I that felt like a serious art class I took. And we were all supposed to do a report on an artist. And I was like, oh, Thomas Kincaid. <laughs> he is my hero. Like, look at this beautiful cottage in the Alps. And, um, but my teacher was like, no, 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 no. And she like very <laughs> swiftly made me feel like realize that Thomas Kincaid is not the kind of artist that he's not a real artist. He's commercialist, you know, he's yeah. replic. He found a formula and he's replicating it. It's like, um, what's it called? Propaganda art, you know, like it's, right. it's for the masses and it's, he doesn't have a good reputation. He, he has a bad reputation. Well, also he wasn't a great guy. Um, but I do remember that mm. feeling of being humiliated. Like I didn't really know what good art was. <laughs> Relate that to, Dead Poet Society. I guess I'm thinking about a surgeon watching House and how, and uh, oh, and watching yeah, right. Dead Poet Society if you're like a lit professor or something. Like Thomas Kincaid, for most people, resonates. But for the elitists, 
Uh, it it doesn't, of course. But being elite, I don't know if it's necessarily a virtue. Well, here's what I would say. Is there such a thing as skill in art and in poetry? Yes. There's a whole strain of thought, and I feel like Dead Poet Society is giving into this impulse that's like, expertise is stupid. <laughs> this PhD in poetry wrote the dumb intro. Everyone rip it out of your books. <laughs> and when they read it, it really is stupid. It's like, we're going to plot the excellence versus the applicability <laughs> on the X, Y, X. Like, oh my yeah, gosh. Right, right, right. Like they just, like they made the most ridiculous. And sometimes it veers into that. But is there such a thing as excellence? Is there such a thing as skill? Right. You might, if you just watched Dead Poet Society, you might be tempted to feel like, no, close your eyes. Look at a picture of Walt Whitman. Close your eyes and just say the first thing that comes to your head. And that's going to be the best kind of poetry. It's like, and I think if you've spent any time doing this, as I have not, um, but I have in yeah. other things, you realize like, oh, no, there is skill. Like Thomas Kincaid feels like a hack because of what you know behind uh -huh. the scenes. He literally was churning these paintings out, like however many a right. day to make money. Now, on the backside of expertise, there's a way you kind of ascend the ladder and mm. then you can kind of come mm. back down and go to any, any point in the ladder that you want. Like, I have to imagine that Gordon Ramsay <laughs> might actually just enjoy a really good cheeseburger sometimes. Maybe not, but there's a difference between yeah. uh, knowing what you don't know and knowing what you do know versus uh, like pretending like all burgers are the same or just right. not you, knowing you the need to know right? the rules before you break them if you if you've done your due diligence you've played your arpeggios for hours at a time then right. you can sit down at your instrument and play the simplest melody and it can have the same resonance as you know Handel's messiah right because you know the bones of what you're doing are still good yeah so that's that structure that's that interplay between structure and freedom freedom exists best when it has structure yeah in our era, this is what I'd just say about our worldview on this. In our era, in a world of expressive individualists who don't think, who think structure's stupid, why would we ever need that? I gotta be honest, those banners that said tradition, excellence, discipline, I was like, God, man, kinda need some more of that <laughs> these yeah. days, right? But in another era that's draconian, like if we lived in the USSR in the 60s or 70s, we might be waving the banner, and rightly so, of we need more expression, right? There's a balance mm -hmm. and a harmony that God created the mm -hmm. world to have that we frequently lose, and, uh, and we need a way to restore and reconcile that. And if you lean too heavily on one for their own sake, if you lean too heavily on structure for its own sake, you become authoritarian, which is what all the headmasters and all the teachers at the school do. Yeah. And if you lean too hard on the, the freedom side, it just becomes stupid. Um, yeah. You need to pursue the truth. And the truth is the sure guide, right? Like the truth of the way things are meant to be, mm. which is only true if there's a creator who had a design in mind. Yeah. Well, Carl, my Carl. <laughs> read read one of your poems. I want to hear a poem that you wrote. Uh, no. But in... <laughs> <laughs> But in third grade, I did have to memorize The Busy Bee by Sir Isaac Watts. And I have that memorized. Oh, let's my, hear that. <clears throat> the Busy Bee by Sir Isaac Watts. How doth the little buzzy bee expound each shining hour and gather honey all the day from every opening flower. How skillfully she builds herself. How neat she spreads her wax and labors hard to store it well with the sweet food she makes. In works of labor or of skill, I would be busy too, for Satan finds some mischief still for idle hands to do. In books or work or healthful play, let my first years be passed that I might give for every day a good account at last. 
The Buzzy Bee by Sir Isaac Watts. Oh, captain, my captain. <laughs> Wasn't that beautiful? Do you need to... I I'm see... standing on... You can't see it, but I'm standing on my desk. Feel free to wipe the tears or just let them flow, Carlin, because I know that was beautiful. Oh, that poem, though, it does actually... It captures one side of the argument that we were just talking about a bit. Should we cinema snorkel the busy bee? Actually, it's at the end of the podcast, so it's stupid to say this, but I'm pretty sure Sir Isaac Watts falls into the earlier category of poetry that romanticism was categorically yeah. rejecting. Like moralistic, yeah. tight little rhyme scheme, tidy right. rationalist. Yeah. And I think the romantics were like, enough of that, we want to live. <laughs> and in third grade, as I was being forced to memorize the busy bee, I could so relate with that sentiment. Maybe that was the point. Maybe your teachers were trying to like spur you on towards the romanticism. Reverse psychology. I'm sure that's what Mrs. Hindman had in mind. Deep strategy. She hated me. Because <laughs> I was such a little twerp. Anyway. You were a twerp. This has been fun. <laughs> this has been an amazing episode of Cinema Snorkel. So amazing. Tell us how amazing you think it is. Somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Give us five stars. Do it. All right. Like and subscribe. Okay. Like and subscribe. Bye. Bye. Bye.